Okay, so this week on In Session, we're going to take a look at some of the health bills that have been either introduced by members of the Frederick County delegation or may have been sponsored. We're going to talk about strangulation, which is a public health concern. Um, Even though it's in the Judiciary Committee, uh, it is a concern among many domestic violence advocates, making it a public health concern. We're also going to talk a little bit about the medical aid and dying bill, which is being reintroduced this year. And then we're going to just touch on some things like uh, the unaccompanied minor bill that was sponsored by delicate Carol Krim and things like contraception and ways to add insurance for treatment of a disease called pandas, which affects a couple families here in Frederick County. Steve joins us now from Annapolis. Steve, how is Annapolis today? It's been fast moving. Uh, I'm getting to the point where uh, multiple delegates and senators are in multiple committees. So you kind of have to bounce around and decide where uh, you need to spend your time. Um, and obviously all these committees have a lot of bills. And for instance, uh, judicial proceedings, uh, was that, that took four and a half hours today. So that was a sort of a marathon meeting, but uh, it's been fun to say the least. And this week was kind of weird because I happened to join you in Annapolis yesterday uh, to cover one of the bills that we're going to talk about later today. Yeah, yeah. It's always nice uh, to see a fellow FNPer uh, down in Annapolis. Um, so, yeah, it was good to have you and showed you around and uh, got to show you the ropes, I guess, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah. So first, let's talk about um, that reason that you were in that marathon meeting, uh, strangulation. Right, right. <laughs> So I'm going to take the lead, if you don't mind, just because I have been covering strangulation, uh, which sounds a little bit weird, but by for all a couple means, of different years. By all means. You're um, the health reporter, so. <laughs> so this bill is actually not considered a health bill in the sense that it's going before the Judicial Proceedings Committee in the Senate and the Judiciary Committee in the House. But it is a public health concern in the sense that strangulation is very common in domestic violence cases. You probably read about it in the newspaper post uh, on the pages. Um, and especially in our blotter section, you know, man strangles woman, woman strangles man in some cases, but most likely it's man strangles woman. Um, it is a common, it's described as a common control method, which basically means that someone can strangle another person, which is basically blocking the passages of the airways, the, the jugular and the carotid artery, um, basically making it so oxygen can't get to your brain or come back from your brain. That can cause a lot of problems um, with the brain, uh, brain injuries um, from the lack of oxygen or ox- oxygen-rich blood backing up. It can also cause um, tearing of the carotid arteries, which might lead to stroke, eventual death. And of course, it can kill somebody if you um, apply pressure for about one to two minutes, which really isn't that long when you're thinking about uh, maybe in a s- domestic assault. But the reason it's used as a common control factor is because it is potentially fatal, Um, It's really easy for someone to hold someone's neck for like a couple seconds, just enough to make them feel woozy, make them feel like they're going to pass out or even make them pass out, but back off enough when they start to pass out so that you don't kill them. And a lot of domestic violence, uh, sorry, advocates have told me it's like a way of saying, I can kill you when I want to. And statistics, which were um, testified on uh, during the hearing by some of our local delegates, Local delegation with uh, Jesse Pippi, who uh, sponsored the bill in the House, um, and some of our local forensic nurses, including Pam Holtzinger, um, they mentioned that um, it's 750 times more likely that someone might die by their partner's hands if that partner had uh, strangled them once before. And that goes up even more if there's a gun involved. 
So it's a pretty serious um, act that happens. But one thing that it is not is a part of our first-degree assault laws, um, which is what this bill is targeting. Basically, the bill is saying we need to have strangulation written down as part of the statute. Um, Maryland is one of the only, it's one of three states um, in the United States that does not have some type of strangulation law or include it in their first-degree felony law. And basically, the advocates are saying, hey, sometimes we can get it in uh, test charged as first-degree assault. We have um, prosecutors who will ask for that. We have cops who will go to the scene and write down lethality reports. But it's really hard sometimes with juries, and juries don't always understand, and sometimes it's hard with judges, and we just it's not always easy to t- show them that it is a serious bodily injury, especially because strangulation only leads bruising in about 50% of cases. So people say no injuries, um, so that didn't happen, or no injuries, so it couldn't have been that bad. And Basically, that's the argument for it. Prosecution is having trouble always getting that first-degree assault felony charge to stick, um, which means that person might get charged with second-degree assault. I can tell you personally, I've seen cases in Carroll County, not necessarily in Frederick County, where they can't even get a second-degree assault um, charge to stick with strangulation. So they're basically saying, we need help. This isn't working. The, the, the opponents of it, mostly from the uh, Maryland Public Defender's Office, although we have some a local senator who's a little wary of the bill, um, basically say, hey, this is already covered by first-degree um, assault language, and if the prosecution isn't getting their first-degree assault charge to stick, it's on the prosecution, not necessarily the law. Damn, I, what, what a <coughs> mastery of the subject. I guess we don't need me to tell what I did for this story, but... Um, <laughs> I guess what I'll add here is the senator you mentioned in our local delegation who is wary, and I definitely think that's a fair word, he's not completely against it, is uh, Senator Michael Huff. And I caught up with him after the Judicial Proceedings uh, Committee hearing today, and essentially a lot of the questioning he had for medical professionals and our Frederick State's uh, attorney, Charlie Smith, is why aren't we, if the laws are on the books, uh, charging up to first degree assault, um, if you know that is a possibility. And basically what what Charlie had said um, and others is that, uh, much like you just alluded to, Heather, it, it's tough to uh, show um, if you don't have the witnesses lined up, especially also I heard a lot that strangulation doesn't leave uh, any visible marks in most cases. So it, it's kind of hard to prove from a physical standpoint that an assault has happened. But um, delineating this uh, in the code as it's currently presented in the bill would pretty much, uh, I think Charlie uh, Smith had said, show that if you're going to do something as serious as block off the windpipe of someone, even if it's for 10, 15 seconds, the intent of doing that is serious enough that he believes that it should be escalated to a first-degree felony assault. Um, it remains to be seen, in, like you, much like you said, Heather, uh, a representative of the Public Defender's Office, again, uh, said that there are many cases like this, and there is the opportunity to kind of charge up to that first-degree assault. But as you, as you know, many advocates argue that it's extremely difficult to do so. Um, and that's something that Delegate Jesse Pippi, who's sponsoring the bill on the House side, said. I think one of the quotes he told me today was that, uh, just what on the books uh, is not, it's its crystal clear that it's not working, essentially. And that's why I think you have a lot of uh, members on both uh, sides of the aisle, both Democrats and Republicans, uh, who have signed on to this legislation. So Yeah, and I think it's important to point out um, that it's a, 
partly an education piece is what a lot of people will talk about with the strangulation that it's just about educating people but it is you know to give credit to people who don't fully understand it like I've been covering this for oh god I'm, I've been working as a journalist for almost five years so I've been covering this for maybe four um four or three and a half four years and you know when I first heard about it I didn't think it was anything that to be you know that concerned about and then I w- sat through um some, some trainings and I you know they talk about and I think um a forensic nurse who I, I believe is at GBMC, Rosalind Berkowitz, she testifies that it um, only takes about uh, four PSI to block off the jugular veins or 11 PSI to block the, the carotid arteries. And, you know, I don't really understand PSI, but she describes it as it's like the amount of pressure it takes to open up a Coke can is the amount of pressure you need to, to strangle somebody. And that's like kind of one of those things that you think about and that's like, oh, wow, like that's, a, you know, something that, you don't think someone can do so easily. And I think that's kind of why they talk about having trouble. It's really making sure, you know, the p- typical person on the street understands, hey, with your hands, the power that it takes to um, use a, you know, open up a Coke bottle or a Coke can is the power to strangle someone. And yes, it might not show bruising, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. So to give juries credit, like I can understand why it's a little bit difficult. Um, <laughs> so I think... I think it'll be interesting. There was a lot of panels um, of advocates, both in the Senate hearing and in the um, the House hearing. And I also noticed that um, they talked about this is the year, you know, they've done this for quite a lot. And I think it does stick out. Um, I think Charlie Smith, when he was testifying, called it, our laws are antiquated. And point, people have pointed out multiple times, Maryland's one of only three states. So I think their message is kind of like it's time to get get with it. Yeah, and one of the things that um, him and Senator Huff had a back and forth about is Senator Huff brought up the uh, kind of scenario like, oh, if there's a bar fight and someone, you know, goes to strangle someone, essentially, is this going to fall under the law? And uh, Charlie Smith said, absolutely, it should, because it, it doesn't change the fact that, yes, it's not kind of like you alluded to, again, that domestic violence situation, but it still is the intent of, you know, cutting off someone's airway, which is what he feels is a serious offense. So that was an interesting kind of dichotomy or kind of a specific scenario that Senator Huff had described. And uh, Charlie is honest that it's in every situation that, you know, this possible harm could be done, that this law should be updated, I guess. So... Yeah, in the House, they had a security guard um, who testified about someone who had actually been out on um, of jail, I think, on bail for a domestic violence ca- uh, a domestic violence case, and the guy ended up strangling and attacking, I believe, two guards at um, a chapel in D.C. So that person testified. Just it's not only domestic violence cases. This case involved domestic violence a little bit, but it can happen to anyone. And I think it was Delegate Conway, I believe, who also mentioned um, concerns about you know police using strangulation as a method um, to to attest you know to to subdue someone so i think there's definitely some questions with um from the delegates and the senators about this bill and possibly some questions that would then have to be decided by court cases if this bill were to pass uh but again i i think i think there's a good i don't want to look into my crystal ball here but um i think given and delegate pippi told me this that 
given the bipartisan people on the bill, not only that, but also the leadership positions within the committees the bill is assigned to, he indicated to me today um, that there is a good chance of this bill passing because apparently there's been a history with this uh, subject in the last few sessions in terms of trying to update this law. But I think uh, this this might be the year. You know, there's been a wave of support from the medical community, from those who've been impacted by, you know, the laws being too perhaps too lenient, and there just seems to be a, a real wave of momentum that that can show that this bill has a strong uh, chance of passing this session. Again, I don't want to, you know, predict anything, but that's just the mood I've gotten from talking to our delegate our delegate members and just. Uh, seeing the testimony, I guess, on the Senate side today. So so quickly before we talk about another bill that advocates are saying it's time for, I just want to point out, too, that one of the things that people are mentioning is just the, the year difference between a misdemeanor and a felony, which is kind of why this bill matters, I think, to domestic violence advocates. Um, you're talking about with second-degree assault. It's still a 10-year um, penalty, which is what the uh, public defender's office is also saying. Hey, look how serious a second degree assault is it's 10 years someone did point out during the house hearing that because of the way parole works in maryland because it's a misdemeanor you might only serve 2.5 years of that 10 year sentence so that gets a little bit too much into the technicalities but a lot of the advocates including one a social worker um from frederick health hospital mentioned is because a second degree assault and it's a misdemeanor when it comes to bail hearings a lot of people get out which is just how it works with bail hearings. Sometimes people get out, sometimes they don't. And I've seen second-degree assaults that end up being held without bail. But because that they might get out, it leaves the woman in a domestic violence situation with not a very little time to safety plan or prepare for what happens if that person gets back. Or, you know, any it could be a man or a woman because they're victims on both sides. Um, but she was just talking about how you need that kind of timing that this first degree assault statute might give someone because they might be held without bail in order to let that woman um, or man safety plan decide to leave if they want to, um, or at least just prepare. Right. To a quick point before we hop to another bill here, um, uh, State's Attorney Charlie Smith, to the point you just made, had said, you know, if you up it to a first degree felony uh, assault, which is 25 year maximum, that that he believes that that will serve as at least some of a deterrent so that the people who are uh, accused and guilty of, you know, these acts will think twice before committing or strangling someone. Um, so that's just something I wanted to add. So. Yeah, and I could easily talk about this bill for um, much longer. Right, but I do right. think we <laughs> should move on to some of the other bills that we have. Um, and so one I want to talk about is a press conference that I went to yesterday. Um, it's not necessarily um, a bill that has been on the committee f- uh, into a committee yet. Um, I know it was introduced and I believe just got bill numbers and it possibly is cross-filed. I am not positive because I have not seen a Senate bill yet, but I might have just missed that. But it's the medical aid in dying. Um, It's got a much fancier name for it. But basically, it's talking about um, physician-assisted suicide is what um, opponents call it, or death with dignity, if you're asking an advocate of the bill. Right. Right. I think, uh, like you said, this bill is still much in the infancy stages, especially compared to the strangulation bill. Um, But this is one over the past couple sessions that has been widely debated. Um, I remember last session, Karen Lewis Young said it narrowly got out of the House by like seven votes. And that was one of the closest votes that she's seen in her time as a delegate. So we'll have to see where it goes uh, this year, frankly. 
publicly. I know that some have opposed in the past, including Senator Hoff, in terms of, like you mentioned, uh, he feels that it's physician-assisted suicide. Um, he's definitely labeled as that in the past. And it remains to be seen um, how he'll look at this year's legislation. But it's definitely going to be something that's going to be widely uh, contested, I think even more so than, again, the strangulation bill that we just talked about. This one is a little bit more uh, stickier in terms of where you fall on it. Yeah, absolutely. And so one of the things that on, you'll hear a little from this press conference, but um, they were talking about the time is now. They chanted that over and over again. So this is kind of they're convinced that this is the year advocates of this bill are convinced that this is the year, that this is the time that it's going to happen. Um, they kind of joked about it being Groundhog Day a little bit and um, how, you know, they've been here before, but this year it's going to be different. And to me, that's very interesting because they just seem so positive um, about that bill. Um, but you mentioned, like, it was a very tough battle for the House and it did not pass in the Senate. So I do do not know if we might see an exact... Um, copy what happened last year if this might be different right right i think i think obviously that's legislation is never the same year to year especially if you're trying to get it through both chambers i mean that's an obvious statement right there but it's obviously we're going to see uh probably some minor tweaks especially to the cross file bill like you mentioned that if that does exist but again it's it's a very contentious issue um it's definitely one of the most hotly debated issues when it comes to medical legislation that the Senate and House here in Annapolis debate. so Yeah, absolutely. And I think we were talking earlier just a little bit about how we were going to do this um, podcast in, in general, not just for this episode. We talked about this might be one of the bigger pieces of legislation, just in the sense that it would be you know news if, if Maryland became a state that would allow for um, medical aid in dying. Um, I did speak to an opponent of the bill. I'm sure he'll be testifying once he goes to committee. Um, Dr. Joseph Marine, um, who teaches at Hopkins, uh, their school of medicine, he is very against it. And he just talks about how this is, you know, goes against what doctors are supposed to do. He says it will hurt mis- uh, patients' trust in doctors. And he really thinks it's going to hurt hospice. And he testified last year. I remember speaking with him when I covered this bill. But um, he, he, he voiced an interesting point about the hospice because hospice right now is the end of life care, not Everyone does it, but a lot of people do. I, know, I personally know people who've gone through hospice. Um, and he seems to think that if this bill passes, that it will hurt that, um, that care because people might just choose death over having end of care. Um, but on the other hand, av- the advocates who were testifying really talked about how they just don't want their, their loved ones to go through a horrible death. Uh, Delegate Shane Pendergrass, who's the lead sponsor on the bill for the House, uh, said that we are all one bad death from supporting this bill. And another delegate whose name I didn't catch, but she talked about her own sister. I, I believe it's stepsister or sister um, who had cancer and ended up dying. And she just talked about how horrible the death was. Um, and when I asked Dr. Uh, Maureen if physicians truly can uh, get rid of all pain with hospice, he mentioned that, you know, there's not they don't necessarily know if they can alleviate all pain. So there's interesting science points on both sides. Um, it's something we'll definitely be following this session um, and should have something in the paper this Wednesday. Or sorry, this Sunday, not Wednesday, for people to um, read. I'm looking forward to that, given your expertise on the topic. <laughs> well, you know, I do joke that I cover death and suffering. Um, okay, <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice. So um, just kind of switch to something else. Um, so we also talked about um, 
we did it. We co-authored an article um, that came out yesterday about another bill from our delegation um, with Delegate Carol Krim about um, more rights for homeless, unaccompanied minors. Um, so we, should we talk about that one? Yeah. So uh, Carol Krem was very supportive of this effort, mainly because she had worked on a work group in the interim before session had started with other uh, delegates, uh, other health, you know, social service officials, and they kind of hammered this out. I know uh, she had worked, uh, she said she had worked with Ed Hine of the Ship of Frederick County, who uh, Ed and his organization is kind of the front lines of this issue of seeing unaccompanied homeless youth and just kind of the impacts that has and the challenges that they go through. Um, so Delgate Krim uh, is very optimistic about this. She feels that given the, again, the bipartisan uh, sponsorship on the bill, I know uh, one of our other local delegates, uh, Delegate Barry Solberde, who's a Republican, is also a sponsor on the bill. Uh, again, Delegate Krim feels like this has a decent shot of getting through at least the House, if not both chambers. So Yeah, and what basically what this bill does, just to, in case anyone didn't read the story. Um, right, correct. <laughs> uh, the bill basically would say that minors who are, who are currently experiencing homelessness would be able to consent to emergency home uh, sheltering services and um, other services that are provided by um, different homeless um, support services. We here uh, in Frederick County have SHIP, um, which has a Thrive program, which basically is a host home network. And the young people right now can't um, do it because they can't consent to it because they're minors. Um, so it makes it a little bit more difficult for them to uh, have a place to stay. And um, Ed Hind, who is the executive director of SHIP, basically says it comes down to stable housing um, and keeping them in school. If you can't go to school because you... Um, don't have stable housing, you're 4.5 times more likely to um, remain homeless, I believe, he said, if you don't graduate or get a GED. And it's just whether they can actually thrive, um, to quote the name of the program. But basically, right. you know, stable housing means that you can focus on other things other than where am I going to stay tonight? And I think that's what they're trying to do with this bill. Right. And Delka Krim, kind of in a similar vein to what you just said, said the reason why you want to try and give these homeless youth a chance is because if they're out on the street, they're more susceptible to be committing crime, to, you know, uh, public health concerns of, you know, diseases and whatnot, um, and just the overall obstacles they face um, if they don't have this ability to kind of sign off for themselves to get into shelters and the services they need, um, they, they, they could face many, you know, many challenges. Uh, and it's just something that she had, you know, kind of encountered and realized as she's worked through this work group. And I think one of the main points she made to me is that there was many kind of disagreements on how we handle this, but we had those discussions in the work group. Um, and I think we ironed out a good bill that has a, should get a, have a fair shot and decent look at passing through the House and Senate. So... Yeah, absolutely. So again, that will be one of the bills that we follow. Um, now, not to just to quickly touch on a couple other things that um, as a health reporter, I'm going to um, take you a little bit of thunder. Some of the bills that I'm no, going to. It's uh, fine. It's fine. <laughs> to focus on. Um, so I'm going to be following a bill that has just been uh, introduced again about a disease called PANDAS. It stands for Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorder After Strep. Um, I've written a lot about this because there are a couple families here in Frederick County who have pandas, but this bill really um, is focused on insurance, which, you know, I'll even admit that it's a little bit boring at first, but basically there's this um, treatment for pandas called IVIG, um, IV immunoglobulin, 
um, and it's a treatment for pandas um, that some doctors here subscribe uh, prescribe. The only problem is insurance does not cover it, so parents are strapped with bills like $10,000, and sometimes you need more than one. So it kind of leaves parents um, in a kind of severe financial hardship. Uh, we've discussed uh, discussed this before in the Frederick News Post, um, with the, starting with a family who actually went in, um, to severe financial hardship because of this. So that's something I'll be following just because it will affect some Frederick families. And the other one um, that I've kind of talked about um, is contraceptive devices. So there's a bill from Delegate Neil Parrott that would um, make it so that teens need parental permission from their parents, clearly because I said parental permission, um, to get a contraceptive device like an IUD or the implantable rod. This stems from a case in Baltimore where, or a school in Baltimore where a student went to one of the school-related health centers, got the implantable rod, had a bad reaction, and her mom took her into the hospital, you know, the doctors, but didn't know what was going on because she didn't know that her daughter had gotten this rod. Um, so we'll be following that um, just because that is something that, while it doesn't necessarily stem directly from Frederick County, would affect Frederick County teens um, and those seeking birth control who are under the age of 18. Right. And I just want to clarify, it's obvious to you, but to our, the general public, this doesn't involve things like the pill or other common, I guess, contraceptives like that, correct? Yeah, it's anything that's invasive. Because okay. uh, that's what Delgate, uh, I think I actually made a call on this story for you, Delgate Aircon um, from, I believe, Baltimore County, um, very much uh, is in that vein. You know, she said her main concern is the story you just mentioned, the Baltimore school, and kind of having uh, minors sign off on invasive devices. And that's what her main concern is, is, uh, is how invasive some of these things can be and the health threats or health risks that those pose. So... Yeah, so again, that's something I'll be following along as it uh, goes through committee and whether it survives committee or not. Right, right. Um, so, uh, Steve, I know that the delegation is going to be meeting on Friday. So anything that you anticipate them discussing that we should talk about? Uh, there's one local issue that has kind of been is- interesting and I've been following, haven't written about yet. Uh, Delgate Cox is looking at uh, the urban renewal law and kind of what local jurisdictions have to do uh, or kind of what you know tools are in their toolbox, for lack of a better term. And Mount Airy has had some issues with dilapidated property, not huge issues, but there is some um, issues in terms of uh, essentially there's one uh, building on the main drag there on the main street that has not been repaired and is disrepair. And they've the the town administrator and count one of the councilmen uh, were at last week's meeting, uh, just basically saying that they've exercised you know all of their local authority, and it seems that. Uh, they just really need this change in the state law that would allow kind of an urban renewal uh, district that would pretty much prompt the landlords of these properties to the table, not even as much as a, a penalty, but just to get the conversation going in terms of how are we going to take care of these properties. Um, there's been some debate between Senator Young in terms of, you know, they have the uh, jurisdiction within, I mean, the city of Frederick has exercised kind of uh, their local, you know, codes and enforcement to deal with this issue. But I think Delgate Cox and the Mount Airy officials were saying, uh, 
the city of Frederick has much more of a robust code enforcement department. I and mean, when you're dealing with small towns like Mount Area, which I believe are 10,000-ish people, um, it's a little bit tougher uh, to kind of enforce your local laws. And you might need some assistance from the state, especially when you've exercised all of your resources. So uh, that's, that's, the, that's one of the main things. There's a couple other things, but I've been following that up. So Yeah, um, to jump off of my health reporter uh, hat and pull on the one uh, about Mount Airy. Um, this is definitely something because of their new town administrator. I don't see this coming out if they didn't have um, David Warrington, who joined um, not that long ago. And it is really interesting because I think in Frederick, we talk about places like Brunswick and even Frederick City as, you know, places with all these vacant buildings and all these problems. And no one really mentions Mount Airy. And, you know, it wasn't until I was talking to one of their um, planning commission members that I kind of realized that they also feel like that they have an issue, um, which is kind of different because I always see Mount Airy as this place that actually has a bunch of shops or has people that are attending the restaurants. So it's definitely interesting to see that this vacant property and problem is kind of really hitting almost every place in Frederick County. Yeah, yeah, it's it's you know you can have vacant properties in small towns or a small city like Frederick, so it definitely does not uh, pick and choose where it you know is a problem for lack of a better term. So yeah, and this will be interesting to follow. So I'm excited to see how you do it, um, just because Mount Airy was really talking about uh, revitalization. They're trying to push some um, interesting um, passages uh, ordinances through they're trying to connect um, Center Street to Maryland 27 which happens over in Carroll County but would be massive for the town if it happens um, they're talking about I'm talking today to one of their planning commission members about a mixed-use development that they're uh, zone that they're trying to get pushed so this will be interesting to see how this plays into Mount right, Airy right well I guess the only other thing I'll mention just as an aside um, you know it's interesting just sitting in the house and senate chambers for the morning sessions and just general announcements and uh, there are a lot of birthdays on Tuesday over the past weekend and whatnot and the one that comes to mind is uh, Delegate Pippi who's the chair of the Frederick County delegation uh, was recognized by the speaker Adrian Jones uh, about, you know, uh, just recognizing and he used Ken Kerr's name. Now, if you know anything about the House rules, you're not supposed to call another delegate or senator by name. You have to be get permission from the speaker or the president. Um, so he kind of got ribbed a little bit. A couple people laughed. and um, But he, he uh, described Delegate Kerr as, you know, that great guitar player we all know and a, a good colleague to have across the aisle. But again, he had, he had slipped up a bit and uh, used his name without being recognized by the chair. And Jones sort of called him out on that. And again, that got a little bit of a laugh from the chamber. But it's always interesting to see just the little anecdotes like that throughout the week. Yeah, of course. Always fun to see that the the, they're having fun a little bit, even as they're discussing some serious bills. Right, um, right. But now that you mentioned that Delegate Hippie mentioned that Delegate Kerr is a great guitar player, I will remind you of our promise to each other to learn how to sing the um, the one uh, song that might be introduced as a children's version of the Maryland State song. Ironically, it's by um, Brian Crosby, who's a, who's a delegate. And he uh, was sitting next to me during um, at the hearing for strangulation. I had no idea who this person was, and then he got up to testify as this delegate. Uh, so I was a little taken back because I just thought he was another press person. But uh, since since we're supposed to be learning the song, maybe Delegate Kirk can um, provide the guitar accompaniment. 
to uh, this song. May, I honestly, we should do that because I keep joking about it, but that'd be much more pleasant sound to kind of brace for people listening to my voice if we <laughs> indeed do this. It's the reward for listening to it all the, throughout the episode. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, whatever you say, yep. <laughs> well, perfect. Well, Steve, I hope you have a wonderful trip home. I hope the long uh, drive back to Frederick isn't too long, um, and we will chat with you next Wednesday. Always appreciate Heather, and always thanks for having me on. Of course, thank you. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. This session is hosted by me, Heather Mangilio from Frederick, and Steve Bonell from Annapolis. It is edited by Graham Cullen. We'll see you next week.